across him at a low point in my career. Well, the low point, actually. Lower, as they say in Texas, than a snake's belly. Clinging to the underside of said reptile was where you'd find me. Johnny Greco. In the middle of the second decade of America's millennium, or Christ's millennium, which by then were interchangeable terms. I was entering, if not the twilight, then certainly the happy hour of a long career that had begun in youthful idealism at the Columbia School of Journalism and proceeded more realistically through the ranks of the newspaper of record, reaching its peak when I was forty-something, and the descendants of Mr. Joseph Pulitzer bestowed one of their baubles on me for investigative reportage. This was when that still meant something— before they began awarding Pulitzers for in-depth gossip and best rumor. From then on, my path led downhill to its nadir, a senior post at something called the New Jersey Inquiring Mind. According to its proprietors, the Inquiring Mind was a newspaper, but it had no connection to news or to paper. At a time when most real newspapers had gone out of business, the term had the cachet of the obsolete. The Inquiring Mind was a newspaper in the same sense that when I was a kid, a pimp-mobile was called a brome. The home page was topped with tasteful line art depicting a crusader, on whose shield was emblazoned the proud word, Truth. Below this logo was a bottom-feeding webzine, pumping out old-fashioned streaming video, and chock-a-block with blinding ads for sex aids, bankruptcy lawyers, homeopathic cancer cures, intercontinental dating services, and astrology-based investment strategies. There was an identical inquiring mind in every other state of the Union and in scores of nominally English-speaking countries. The whole worldwide web net of rock-bottom sleaze cost almost nothing to run and made a fortune. It was owned by three guys in Bangalore. Alas, they didn't call themselves three guys from Bangalore, if only. They called themselves... Newsweb, and were listed on the Nikkei Multibourse. One of them is now Prime Minister of India. The inquiring mind was premised on an obvious, if depressing, reality. Whatever global computer literacy was doing for understanding among nations, it had added hundreds of millions of people to the happy throng of those willing to do anything in front of a camera. Now everyone in the world had the chance to act like a foobar senior on spring break whether it was a Sherpa trying to rollerblade down stage two of Everest, or an ordinary Joe from Canton, Ohio, with a size 14 feet so webbed that from the butt down he looked like Donald Duck, the freaks of planet Earth found a warm welcome at the inquiring mind. Like all the others, the New Jersey edition was essentially a strip mining mechanism that scoured our territory for freaks. The only remotely newspaper-like aspect was my half-dozen stringers around the Garden State doing the scouring. If they found something promising, they forwarded their video to me. If I liked it, I would report it. That is, insert myself in the video, thanks to some miracle of digital editing beyond my print-bred brain, and slug it into the appropriate department. It could run regionally or nationally or that pinnacle of journalistic prowess globally. The top-rated department was the Nutlog, which brought our repertorial scrutiny to bear upon rampant cases of mental derangement. It wasn't exploitative or anything. Perish the thought. Many Nutlog candidates were religious nuts, which wasn't surprising given the improvements Christian fundamentalists had introduced into the American way of life. 
The Ten Commandments now appeared helpfully in schools, bars, planes, restrooms, gyms, and nightclubs. On cigarettes, alcohol, prescription drugs, lingerie advertising, anywhere temptation might slither up and bite your ankle. This theocratic concern for American souls was widely seen as a good thing. In a National Inquiring Mind Instapoll we'd run, 86% of the respondees believed theocracy was spelled the-ocracy. 89.9% of them said they didn't know what ocracy was, but they knew it was good. The most powerful effect of the ocracy on the deranged was its constant drumbeat that these were the final days. For someone with a limited supply of marbles, the urgency of the end-time message had a very specific result. Instead of developing some more normal abnormality like barking from trees or directing traffic in their boxers, they zeroed in on being God, or close to it. My favorite nut-log-nut was a former professor of archaeology at Rutgers. An obliging angel of the Lord had informed him that he was the reincarnation of Simon Stylites, a saint who'd spent the best years of his life atop a 50-foot pole sustained by bread and water. St. Simon the Sequel had constructed a similar perch in his yard in Asbury Park and had been living up in it in a loincloth for a while when the nutlog crew caught up with him. His wife would shin up a ladder every morning to bring the saint his bread and water. We shot this ritual from a neighboring tree. The very first time St. Simon snarled, Damn you, woman, I said stale bread, and this water is clean. That did it for me. But what sold him to the nutlog was an hour later, when the time came for his self-mortification. The appearance of his helpmeet had given him a fine erection, which he proceeded to pound with a mallet against the floor of the platform for a good half hour. Then there were the messiahs. In theory, messiahs were a gold mine. Problem was, they were largely indistinguishable. The Manson eyes, the unkempt hair, the beard with bits of food in it, the occasional robe, they'd all been watching the same movie. When you get right down to it, fanatics aren't that funny. Except for the King James garble coming at you nonstop, most Christs could just as easily be animal activists, Roswell geeks, classical bassoonists, or wine writers. So when I first got a report from my stringer in South Jersey about some guy wandering around with a bunch of disciples performing miracles, I didn't pay much attention. Messiahs were a dry hole. But other stringers in other parts of the state began to hear things on their grapevines. A man cured of TB in a supermarket parking lot in Phillipsburg. A kid with MS made to walk in a schoolyard in Mount Laurel. More than one report of young women cured of full-blown AIDS, no location given. I began to wonder a little, but not whether miracles were happening. Quite the opposite. These miracles had a familiar ring. They sounded like retooled versions of old tent revival laying on of hand scams, auto-suggestion temporarily alleviating symptoms of serious disease. You had to know your way around not to be fooled by them, but desperately sick people often were. Then they'd find out there'd been no cure and fall apart. Hardly what nutlog fans wanted to see on their car pewters in morning traffic. Messiahs fell into two categories, nuts or hustlers. This guy sounded like the second, and I wasn't about to give him any publicity. He was probably doing enough harm as it was. On the other hand, he didn't seem to want publicity, which was puzzling. Nuts or hustlers, messiahs were always ravenous for attention. Even the most severely unhinged sought us out day and night. 
One of my stringers, a funny, energetic Asian kid named Cooney, was intrigued enough to start keeping a record of the miracle messiah. There weren't that many sightings, perhaps five in as many months. All were after the fact. There was no way to predict where he was going to pop up. He seemed to be operating in the tri-state area, but he was hard to track because he moved in the underground of the truly poor, the toughest neighborhoods of hard-hit cities like Elizabeth, Trenton, Bridgeport. Once or twice, a stringer got wind that he'd materialized somewhere, but the neighborhoods where he appeared weren't easy or safe to navigate, and by the time someone got there, he was on his way again, leaving behind talk of cures and second sight and people changed by his words. The inaccessibility of these places then made it hard for stringers to find and check for people who'd been cured or changed by his words. Cooney kept at it. One source said the miracle worker's people called him Jay, and they all traveled together in a beat-up van. He sometimes preached in Spanish. He never took up collections, as other messiahs invariably did. One source said he had a real slow way of talking that made you feel peaceful-like. Cooney said someone told him she thought he'd got his start in Camden. That'd be news, I said. Getting your start in Camden. I remember this conversation because it was the first time Cooney called him the mysterious stranger. I like that. It was a very cool put-down. From then on, in the way that happens when someone anonymous acquires a handle, he became more real. I asked Cooney about him regularly, not because I planned to run a story, but just so I could say... What's new with the mysterious stranger? It always made me smile. It wasn't a nice smile. The term mysterious stranger had a derogatory, derisive overtone. It could even be code, indicating to those who moved in the anti-fundamentalist side.